Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, we are so excited to be with you in person. Uh, good to see uh, your eyeballs, at least. Uh, many of your faces as well. So we're just excited uh, to be able to be in person. For those of you that have joined us and can continue to join us uh, online, we, we can't wait uh, for the time when uh, you all will be with us as well. Uh, well, my name is Lance Williams. I'm the lead pastor here at The Grove. And uh, so we are continuing on. It's kind of weird. We started a new series last week. We're now gathering together here for the first time. And it's week two. And I think this is the first time I've ever done this where I had a part one and a part two of a sermon. Um, and then I told everyone today that like this was the conclusion of last week, which is at least its own sermon. And so we're going to read through all of Matthew 25. We're going to do that a little bit differently. Um, we're going to have three videos setting up three different points basically to our sermon today. Those videos being our people uh, reading the scriptures to us, praying over us uh, and whatnot. So today we continue on now second week in our series on eternity. And here's my hope in preaching on eternity during a global pandemic. Um, here's what I've noticed. I've done way more funerals than I've done weddings in my ministerial career, so to speak. Um, you wouldn't think that uh, with the life of our church, but I've done a lot of funerals. And here's what I notice about funerals um, is that everybody turns into a universalist at a funeral. Everybody turns into very sentimental people uh, when we get to a funeral. And so, um, like last week, when we talked about, are we, we, we usually are trying to get ready for our death, although I think we've been trained to manage that, like through medicine and, and exercise and diet, we, can, we think we can somehow manage our death, but yet what do we do to get ready for the imminent return of Jesus? Because He could come right now, poof, and He could do it, right? That's what the Bible says, that it's very imminent. And yet we know that 2,000 years have gone by and it's been imminent for 2,000 years. So there's a delay yet to his coming. And as we talked about last week, let me re remind all of us, what was that shaping question? The shaping question uh, for then as well as for today. If Jesus were to return tonight, how would you live your day today? If he was to return tonight, how would that shape how you lived today? And as we enter into this time together, uh, we pick up on, really, it's the second half of a sermon by Jesus. It's Matthew 24 and now Matthew 25, known as the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives, where, which is a very significant prophetic place for him to be talking about the end times, which the Bible says is where he's going to return. Um, and so he's speaking these words about his return at the actual place of his eventual return. And so we pick up on these three uh, stories that Jesus is continuing to tell. Last week he told two or three stories. Now he's continuing to tell three stories, each of which, each of which prepare us in a very particular and uh, individualistic way. And so if we can hang in there and read through all of these together, we're going to pull one main point out of all three, and each of them will prepare us in different ways. So um, let's get right to it. Let's read Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, the parable of the ten virgins, and let's read that together, uh, both virtually and here together through these beautiful people. Reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wise took jars of oil with their lamps. 
While the bridegroom delayed, they all rested and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. The wise answered, No, lest there not be enough for us and you. Go rather to those who sell it and buy some for yourselves. But while they went to buy some, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Holtz, for uh, reading for us. Um, what a uh, stirring first part of this chapter, the parable of the ten virgins. So let's just summarize it, right? There are ten virgins, ten bridesmaids, if you will. The Bible is clear, though, that they are, uh, in this word, virgins, those dedicated to purity. Uh, that's going to make some sense for us here in just a moment. But there are ten uh, virgins, five that were wise and they had extra fuel for their lamps, and five that were foolish had no fuel for their lamps. I want you to notice something as we read that, right? Um, that the five that were foolish and the five that were wise all fell asleep. They all at some point grew weary of waiting for the bridegroom to come for them. What mattered was that when the bridegroom came at about midnight, those that were wise were able to dip their torch back into a flask or a jar of oil and light that baby back up because they were ready to celebrate the coming of their groom. In first century Israel, it was custom for the groom and his friends to be at his house getting ready while the bride and her friends were getting ready at their house. And what would happen is that there would be a delay, many times a long delay at the, the groom's house uh, for a lot of different reasons, a lot of cultural reasons we might not understand. Uh, one of those reasons being that they were negotiating the bride price, the dowry uh, with the father of the bride. And so there would be a delay there so much so that there was an expectancy amongst the, the bride and the bridesmaids. Right. But for whatever reason, there's a delay here for the groom to come with his friends to come and get the bride to come and get the bridesmaids, have that wedding celebration at the bride's home, and then they would return back to the groom's house where they would have a wedding feast and jam out. Now, friends, this is a picture of the kingdom of God, that our groom is at his home with his friends. And that was kind of like that first coming, right? And he's coming now again with for his bride. That's us. And so he's saying for all of us, there are those amongst us again, just like last week, that there will be huddled up together saying they know the groom, saying they know the bridegroom who is to come. But those that know him know that he is yet coming, but may be delayed. And so they've got extra fuel for the delay. So I'm just going to pull away one big point of all these parables. We could pick them apart. And, and I, that's my tendency, right? But as I was re-preparing for this last night, I was like, one takeaway per parable, that's all I get. I'm not allowed to flood everybody with uh, a seminary's worth of information in 30 minutes. And you just thought I said 30 minutes when actually I meant more than that. But nonetheless, here we are, right? So all, all thought that they knew that when the bridegroom was coming. The issue here is not that they fell asleep. 
The issue here is that it is a, one of preparedness. What set them apart was the extra oil. And so one big takeaway, true readiness for the true, for the true, uh, uh, the wise virgins is perseverance in holiness. True preparedness, true res- readiness is perseverance in holiness. Why do I say that? Well, number one, these are very particular. Like the Bible is clear when he uses words that they're virgins. There are women dedicated to purity. When we think purity, think holiness without spot, without blemish. Right? All of them say they were. And yet at the same time, only five of them, half of them are truly dedicated to that holiness over the long haul, to that purity over the long haul. Um, They were prepared to persevere through the dark night of delay with extra fuel. So I don't know about you, if you've ever, anybody ever rode a motorcycle in here? Motorcycle riders, anyone? Ooh, more than I thought. Okay, Uh, whenever I grew up, I grew up uh, riding dirt bikes uh, with my dad. And it was like, without fail, we would go out and we would set out on this journey uh, on dirt bikes. And about a half a block down the road, um, I would run out of gas. And what was the issue? Um, I had the gas off. Um, and so I had the gas off. And so I had to turn the gas on. And that was the first problem that I would usually have. I would run out of gas halfway down the block. The, the tank was full of gas, but my switch was off. So I would turn the switch to on, which allowed the fuel to go to the rest of the bike through the carburetor and everything else. Now, the, uh, that's the first time I would run out of gas in the journey. The second time I would run out of gas in the journey is after a, like a full day of riding and I would like truly run out of gas. But what is so cool about motorcycles? Most of them, at least they were back in the day. I don't know what they are now. I haven't ridden a motorcycle in forever. They have a reserve tank. Do they still have these on motorcycles? Yes. Okay. I've got, I've got a head nod and a, and a two thumbs up there. Okay. The reserve tank was what would get me home. I knew that I had enough gas in the tank once I got to the reserve tank. The same thing is happening for these uh, bridesmaids that they have, but here's the deal. The, the foolish have no reserve tank. They're out of gas. They can't wait for the bridegroom anymore. They have run out of fuel for their faithful journey in waiting for the bridegroom. They have no reserve tank. The, the wise have a reserve tank on which they can draw when they see the bridegroom coming. Friends, if the fuel to wait well for the delayed groom is perseverance, what are you persevering or persisting in? What are you just stubborn about? What are you persisting in? What are you persevering in? And I want to uh, reiterate, we must persevere, friends, in personal holiness and pursuit of the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 10 that those who persevere to the end will have eternal life. Paul says in Colossians 1 that there's a big old if we continue in in the faith. These things will be restored to us and given to us. Throughout the Scriptures, old and new, there is a perseverance that God expects of His people to persevere until the end. So much so that the one who fell away from Jesus at, at the end of Jesus' life, his name was Peter, right? He had these unbe- unbelievably uh, heartbreaking moral falls. And yet he would write this towards the end of his life in Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture today. We're already reading some, but we're going to read a lot of Scripture today. I hope that's okay. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 
uh, through 11. It says, for this very reason, make every effort. I want you to hear perseverance in this. I want you to hear making every effort in this. I want you to hear persisting in your faith that just simply believing in Jesus truly is not what the Scripture talks about when He talks about having followers of Jesus. Philippians, I believe it's 1, says that even the demons believe in Jesus. Even they acknowledge that He's real, that He's King, that He's Master. Even they believe that. See, that's not enough. That's not what God is calling us to. There's a life transformation, a holiness that is being set inside of our hearts by the Spirit that we may follow and persist and persevere in Him. Let's continue reading. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, your belief, your trust with virtue, with with living with the things that God says are important at the forefront of what's important. And and with virtue, with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now check this out in verse 8. He's going to give us a strong challenge here. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, a personal holiness dedicated to the Lord over our lifetime and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, those that are unfruitful and ineffective in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ have not then put these things at the forefront of our lives. Verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. I don't know about you, but um, I'm, I'm nearsighted. I have to wear contacts um, and I have to wear glasses normally so that I can see far away. Jesus is telling us, Peter is telling us that we're so nearsighted that we are blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. The gospel is at the center of this kind of perseverance. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm it. Confirm your calling. Confirm what God has done for you. And and, an election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What a great promise. Verse 11, for in this way, now listen y'all, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you want assurance of your salvation? The Bible's super clear. Persevere. Continue on in the faith. Don't get to the end of your life. Don't, friends, don't get to the end of your life. If you've been baptized as a child, don't get to the end of your life and go, well, I was baptized when I was eight. Does that count? Well, what, what happened? How did you live from eight until 88? Uh, well, kind of for myself. Oh, that, that, that's a tragedy for all of us that would grow up in the church, that would raise our children in the church. Instead, add to these things. Add to that faith virtue. And all the things that are listed here. For in these ways we may have assurance of the promise of the eternal life both here and forevermore. That's what Jesus is getting at with this parable of the ten virgins. So the warning of the foolish virgins tell you that no one, no one can supply this fuel for you. They, they ask the wise virgins, well, you've got extra there. Why don't you hand some to me? And then maybe we'll both be okay. And the virgins, the wise ones simply say, no, I don't have enough for both. You've got to go get your own. If you're here and you really, in, the, in your heart of hearts, do not know the Lord Jesus, your parents cannot stand before God on your behalf. Your wife will not stand before God on your behalf. You will have no other advocate besides Jesus Himself. And He knows what's going on in our hearts. 
We cannot borrow our faith from another. We will stand before God, not really on our own merit, on the merits of Jesus or on our own merit. I will stand, I pray you will stand on the merit of Jesus. And not whether or not we've done good enough things or wanted to do or purposed to do enough good things. That's 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 parable number one, okay? So that's like big picture stuff. Those who want to follow Jesus, those who say that they believe in Jesus, true readiness is perseverance and personal holiness. All right, so that's number one. Number two, again, this was last week's conclusion. Are you glad we split this up? I am. All right, that's number one. Number two, here we go, right? Now a second parable is going to be given by Jesus and it'll be read by these beautiful people. Matthew 25:31-46 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left Then the king will say to those on his right Come you who are blessed by my father Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did... We see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you. And when did you see, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Please pray with me, saying, Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. We're going to bank that, and we're going to talk about that one in just a minute. But the second one is right there in the middle about the parable of the talents. And so we're going to do that one next. But we're going to bank all that. and just, We're going to talk about that in a minute. The Parable of the Talents For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He would receive the five talents, wouldn't once and traded them, and he made five talents more. 
So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also to who the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. So you'll notice how all of these end. We'll, we'll, we'll pick that up in just a moment here. Um, but as a summary to the parable of the talents, right? There are three servants. Jesus says this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. There are three servants um, all who were given large sums of money while their master went on a long journey, all returned money, y'all, all came to their master. None of them came to their master with an empty hand. They all came back with uh, money or talent or resources that were given to them by their master to their master. They returned something. Two were commended for their use of their master's resources. And it says in verse 15 that they were given according to their ability. Two of them returned their resources and were commended, while one returned a resource and was condemned. What happened? There is certainty here, uh, and there is clarity here in the Scripture. So the one big takeaway that I have for us out of the parable of the talents is this. God has given us all resources, which we must risk. God has given us all resources, which if we are following Jesus, will require risk. And I didn't put this on here, um, like the all knowing, the all powerful, the all wise God resourced you uniquely. So he, you may think like, okay, so my gifting and my personality and my story, like your, your story probably has, well, I know it has a, some pain associated with disappointment. 
with there's woundedness, whether it's from a dad womb or a mom womb or whatever it may be, right? There are wounds in our story and God has allowed for you to be so wounded, so uh, so affected by your upbringing that you may bring hope and comfort to someone else. That's what 2 Corinthians 1 tells us. That we have com- been comforted by our God so that we may bring comfort to others. Your story, your experience is good and bad. Your worldview, your natural talents, your natural abilities, your spiritual gifts, your unique opportunities that God has put you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, or wherever it may be, these things have been resourced to you according to your ability. That's what God says. You have been given resources whether you wanted to deny them or not. And that's part of the problem with the lazy and wicked servant. They, they deny their own ability. They just go, man, you're like, this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to show up to the master. And if I risk this, I'm going to have nothing in my hands for him. I've only got one. So in order to preserve what I've got, I'm going to put it in the ground. It sounds like a wise thing to do. It actually sounds like a lot of what we may end up doing. Um, I remember when we were first starting the church, uh, the Grove, when I was kind of contemplating it, I got asked by a very wise person. Uh, they just looked at me and they go, okay, so you're contemplating this. What's holding you back? And I go, I'm real candid with you. I got a mortgage. Um, I got a van, which by the way, it's a sad day when you think of a van as something you need to hold on to. That's just suburbia has got a death grip on you when you think I can't obey God because I got a van. But nonetheless, that was where I was at. I got a mortgage. I got a van. I got a kid on the way. I don't want to put all that in jeopardy. And the wise counselor looked at me and said, those are all second things, Lance. How do you pursue the first thing? And immediately I was like, dang, you're right. And I don't like you, but I love you. Right? That's the reality. When we get wise counsel, when we start to realize our hearts are not big enough for God's dream to fit inside of us and said, I'm holding on to a minivan instead of the kingdom of God. Don't we put our talent in the ground? Don't we have a tendency to to hear the words like teachers are going back and praise God, they're going back. Moms are going to be uh, and dads are going to be uh, like educating their children at home virtually for now the second time in your life. Uh, and yet that's that's part of our world the teachers that are going back, for the counselors that are uh, licensed by the state. I think about all these things that are going on in our world right now. And there are regulations about what you can, about what you cannot say about Jesus. And I want to gently affirm you, like, play by the rules, but be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, to find a way to share the gospel, to present your hope. Because really, candidly, who cares if you lose? If we yet gain the kingdom, who cares if we can share the gospel with people, if we lose our job or our security or whatever it is that we're holding on to? Because isn't that what's behind it all? That we want our job so that we can keep our home, so that we can keep our lifestyle, so we can keep our comfort. That's what's behind it. That's what's behind it for me. And yet the call is clear that we may not bury our resources, our opportunities, our gifts, our talents, the gospel itself into the ground waiting for the king to come and make all things right. No, instead, we use his resources. We go to the marketplace with our two or our five or our one. We go to the marketplace and we use our master's resources to expand his kingdom. That's why they were commended. They took what they had and they did what they could. 
I got a new motto coming off of break, uh, off of my month-long break. My motto is this, do what you can when you can. You want to know why we're meeting on August 16th here at Frost Elementary in the midst of a pandemic? Because we can. And we're going to do what we can when we can. Will we get shut down this week? I don't know. Maybe. We get shut down next week? I don't know. Maybe. When school starts, who knows? All bets are off, right? But what we can, when we can, and I think that principle comes a little bit from this parable. Look, at this is what the deal is, right? The two faithful servants use what God has given them to expand their master's kingdom, to expand the honor of his reputation, and to display his wisdom. In Ephesians 3, verse 10, it says this, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You guys are showing the demons and the angels how wise God is. That's God's plan A through plan Z is us. The people of God showing off the wisdom of God for bringing you into his household to manage his uh, resources. What a beautiful statement. What a beautiful statement. You see the condemned, the wicked and lazy servant was condemned because he buried his master's resources in fear and in disbelief. Now, here's what I know. We are overcome with fear these days. We are overcome with the what ifs like you've run the worst case scenarios in your mind and you've gotten caught up in all the what ifs. Me too. And so for you teachers that are going back, the what ifs, man, they can drown out the hope that you have. The students that are headed back, the what ifs can drown out the hope that you have. May I encourage you that God is bigger and better than all the what ifs that we could come up with, that he is more present than we could ever dream. See, that's the beauty of a lot of these parables is that God is saying, I will come. It will happen. I will return. You don't have to worry about it on whether or not it's going to happen. I will be faithful to that word to return. For the wicked servant, they got caught up in fear and in disbelief. And we know that because when the master comes back in verse 27 says, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I was so harsh, which by the way, there's some sarcasm in that. Because after all, the master gave them something to manage. If he was so harsh, why would he give him anything? And instead, there's, a, there's an accusation against God's generosity in all of this. You see, the, the wicked and lazy servant got caught up in fear. And the, the, the master says, you should have given it to the banking system here so that I could have what was mine with interest. And if you think that the banking system of first century Rome was safe and insured like ours is, you would be wrong. What the master, what Jesus is saying is you should have taken it and given it to an entrepreneur. You should have taken it and given it to a money changer. Like, and you know what money changers are if we read the scriptures. You should have given it to them. And and Jesus is clear. Take a risk with the resources that I have given you. Um. We must be people of risk if we are going to be people who follow Jesus. That's the point of this second parable. That's how we ready ourselves is if we will take a risk. And many of you are going back into the classroom for the first time. I know my wife is going back after a year off and choosing to do so in the midst of a, of a pandemic. It just seems like crazy town. But they do so in faith. And we do so in faith. Whether we're keeping our kids home or sending them Uh, to school in person, we do so. Uh, My prayer is that we do so in faith, managing the resources and opportunities for the king's glory and not our own. So that's 
parable number two. And we've already read the scripture for a parable and story number three. And I know our kids are starting to get antsy, so I'll be uh, a little swift, as swift as I can, and yet also purposeful to, to move through this. If we remember what we read, um, what the Dickersons read to us in verses 31 through 46, what we see there is that Jesus is, he says this, look, this is what it's going to be like in the coming of the Son of Man. I'm going to separate everyone into sheep and into goats. The sheep are the true believers and the goats are those that said they believe, but truly are not believers at all. And we may say, what is his judgment based upon? I want to know. What is judgment? If it's going to be for all of eternity, and he says eternal punishment, outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, a place where those that do not know God are, I don't want to be in that place. So please, Lord, give me clarity upon which you are making your judgment. And he does. He makes it very clear. And so suburban church, I need us to hear these words. This is a shocking, shocking truth. And this is one where I'm reminded of my seminary professor who would say hard things and then hide behind the podium. Because he was afraid that everybody was going to start throwing stuff at them. It's one of those shocking truths. We start to realize what is God basing his judgment on? The one big takeaway is this. The followers of Jesus faithfully care and serve the marginalized. Followers of Jesus faithfully care and serve those who are marginalized. And this is my second little sub point. And those that don't. Don't know Jesus. That's shocking. That's troubling to our core. I don't know if it is for you. It is for me. Because all of a sudden I start feeling guilty about not serving and not caring to about the homeless man that I may see or woman or, or not going into uh, North Richmond and being more present there over the last five or six years of our church life. I start to feel guilty. God is making it clear. Those that will serve the marginalized, are His faithful followers. And those who don't, aren't. We must understand this as suburban Christians when we have um, uh, like everything about our life is designed to make us comfortable. Why can't we drive to Katy to go to Target? Because we need one closer. We need one in, Bella, we need one in, in, in Aliana. Why can't we go to Rosenberg for, for Lowe's or for Academy? Because we need one closer. Everything is designed in our world to produce for us convenience and comfort. And what Jesus is saying, we cannot live for convenience and comfort. We must be people that lay down free time, time with our kids or whatever it may be, and go and serve the marginalized. Why? Why is he so strong on this? Why is he making such a big deal about heaven and hell, sheep and goats on whether or not we will serve those amongst us? Because God has always not just stuck up for the marginalized, but identified with the marginalized. See, all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, he has said to us that the poor, the immigrant, the widow and the orphan are like the top four types of people that. God's people are called to care for. Now, if you just heard a few things, your political uh, hairs just started to raise up on your back and on your neck or on your arms. Friends, let us be um, loyal to our king. Not a, any color that we may ascribe to or, or vote with in November. Like if there's anything that we're learning through pandemic is that we hold probably not probably. Let me just take my fear of rejection and man out of that. Um, because I'm afraid of what you all are going to say. So that's one thing out of, out of a, a time of break is that I've been 
uh, I realized that I was way too afraid of what you all were going to do when I said some hard things. Those days are dying. And you think to yourself, you were afraid all those times? What's it going to be like when you're not afraid? I'll tell you. Look, if you have more at your core a color, uh, a, a political color than the flag and the banner of Jesus, you're out of order. Period. And this passage is going to tell us we're out of order. When we start to have emotional uh, upbring, uh, risings in our heart about we have to care for the immigrant, but I'm a, I'm a this. God says we've got to care for the immigrant, the refugee amongst us. We do whatever we can to care for them. And if you think that I'm crazy, let me just read some Scripture. First, out of the law, Leviticus 23.22. We all love Leviticus. You did your quiet time out of Leviticus this morning. It says this, and when you reap the harvest of your land, basically, when, you, when, you, when you're a farmer and you take in the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Don't take all that God's given you. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. A.K.A. don't go back for a second round. Instead, leave them in your land. Leave them for the poor. Leave them for the sojourner. That's the immigrant. Leave them for those that are passing through your land. Leave them for them. And then I love it. I am the Lord your God. In Proverbs 17, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. We'll get to that in just a second. Back to Isaiah 58. Is not the fast that I chose. God's people are fasting. They're wondering why God is not answering them because they're doing all the rain dances and all the things that the, the law says to do. And God's still saying, now, that's not the fasting that I want from you. I want your heart. This is the fasting that I chose for you. In Isaiah 58. Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke of oppression, of marginalization. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to feed the homeless poor, uh, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, cover him. If you remember, we just read that in Matthew 25. And then in Galatians 2, you want to see the value with which God puts on remembering the poor. Paul goes to Jerusalem and he gets approval basically from John and James and Peter. And they go, man, we fully approve of your ministry only that you would remember the poor. The very top thing that Paul was ready to do. God has always emphasized the service and the care of the marginalized by his people. God has always stuck up for the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the immigrant. And Jesus says this, he's identifying himself with the poor, with the immigrant, with the orphan, with the widow, with those that have been oppressed. He identifies himself and he says, yeah, yeah, that's me. Look at that. I am the marginalized. I am the put out. I am the hungry. I am the homeless. I have become that for you so that you will feast forever. Here, take my clothes, Jesus says, that you might no longer have the clothes of your own good works, which are a stench to my father. Instead, be clothed in my righteousness, be clothed in my holiness. Come to the bounty of my table, which I have prepared for you by becoming the bread of heaven for which you to feast on every day of your ever uh, your eternal life. Drink from the fountain of the living water, which will always quench your deepest soul thirst. Come rest with my yoke on you. Live like me. Learn from me. These people are me. That's what he's saying in Matthew 25. When you do these to the least of these, you have done them to me. And when you don't do these to the least of me, you have not done them 
to me. This should shock us at our core. Have you ever wonder why Jesus is so strong on this point? Um, I recently listened to a uh, passage or a uh, sermon from Tim Keller, who is a retired pastor from New York City. And he talks about this passage in such a way that was uh, really just amazing. Um, he talks about this, that there was a woman named Beatrice Webb who architected the British welfare system, creating a system or a machinery, a.k.a. a program of caring for the poor in Britain. And very early on in her career, after she had written this program, she said she has put all her hopes on the goodness of humanity. And 20 years after her system was in place and she started to see the failings of her system, her program, her machinery, she wrote this in her journal. I now realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man and how little you can count on changing them by any change in the social machinery. What is she saying? There's no amount of program. There's no amount of events that the staff, deacons, or elders to go down to attack poverty. There's no amount of any of that that's going to fix the problem. She continues, no amount of knowledge no amount of science will be of any avail until we can curb the bad impulse in the human heart. How does that relate to Matthew 25? The reason why we don't care for the poor, why they don't care for the poor in Britain, the reason why we don't care for the marginalized and why Jesus has such a strong stance on the matter, why he says you're either a sheep or a goat in this. Why is it? Because we don't want to. We don't want to care for the poor. We don't want to care for the marginalized. We don't want to stick up for the widow or the orphan. It costs too much. It reminds us that this world is broken, that the king is not yet here. It, it, it challenges our values of core, uh, of comfort and convenience. And it makes us give those things up, sacrificing those things, because we, you, you can't do both. You can't serve them and also be comfort, or comfortable or convenient. And Jesus is clear, no amount of programs or systems to care for the orphan, widow, poor, refugee, marginalized matter if we don't individually care about the marginalized. And Jesus' point is this, if you don't serve the least of these, you haven't really been changed by the gospel. That's shocking to me. That's challenging to me. I want to be ready for his return. And if I'm going to be ready for his return, that when I, when I hear the cry of the orphan, I must see Jesus who became an orphan when he was abandoned by his father on the cross. When I see the immigrant, we, we must see Jesus who was once an immigrant himself having to flee for his life as a baby, fleeing Bethlehem, sodding, seeing, seeking asylum in Egypt. When we see prisoners, we don't see a criminal, we see Jesus, the creator of all things, who became captive to his creation while in prison where he was beaten, where he was flogged so unjustly just so that you and I could be released from prison just like that murderer, Barabbas. You see, when we see these things, we start to see Jesus in the midst of those places. May we not be a people that separate the scandal of the cross from real life and instead see the, the value of seeing Jesus when we look into the eyes of the orphan at Depelchin. We see the long list of things that we got to do in order to get into Pelchin, which includes a blood sample. And fingerprinting. When we see those things that are lining up against us, may we see Jesus on the other end of those barriers, push through them to go and serve the orphan in India or at Depelchin or wherever it may be. 
Whatever requirements are before us, may we persevere past them wherever the Lord leads because we see Jesus on the end of it. When we see the callous feet of the homeless, I'm reminded of the callous feet of the homeless man on the beach in Florida. I don't know his name. I didn't care enough to ask. I was on vacation. The condemning thought of my own heart. I see his feet in my mind. May I remember that Jesus washed my feet as a homeless man. And remember these things. And may we remember what Jesus has done, the extent that he has gone. We see the prisoner. We remember that we deserve that fate if not for the grace of God. And may we remember these beautiful words in Matthew 25, that when we serve the least of these, we serve Jesus himself. So each of these stories ends with a haunting truth. You are known by me. You will do these things. You don't do these things. You're not known by me. An echo of Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And although those are haunting words, I want to submit to you that this, there's good news in this. Wouldn't you want the clarity with which Jesus delivers these words? If your eternal life was at stake of being ready for Jesus' return, wouldn't we want to have the clarity that God says, hey, look, you follow me, this is what it looks like. You don't follow me, I've warned you. See, I want to ready us for his return because next week we're going to talk about heaven and we're going to talk about hell. There's nobody else in the scriptures that talks about hell more than gentle Jesus. And we've got to get our minds around what he's trying to do with his ministry to bring us to full knowledge of what will come and befall all of us. That there's good news in God's clarity for us. These all stories tell us it's one thing to believe it's one thing to even huddle up with those who truly know Jesus by acting like you've got enough oil in your lamp as you await the bridegroom. But it is quite another to follow Jesus, to honor your master with your resources, to sacrifice safety in your pursuit to expand his kingdom. You see, following this rabbi, this Jesus means giving up what is comfortable so that you might serve him by serving those who need people with positions of power and privilege to trumpet their cause. This is the oil that burns through the night. May we be a people who don't just affirm these things, but enter into these places which will cost us money. It will cost us comfort. It will cost us recognition. It will cost us free time. It will even cost us the hallowed time with your children. In these ways, though, we will ready ourselves for the return of the King. We pray for us and let's sing and we'll get ready for the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the fullness of Matthew 25. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. Man, set our hearts ablaze like this is the only and last time that we'll ever gather with a corporate assembly. Because it may be. You may come tonight or we may never be able to gather again. Who knows? We don't. We cannot boast about what tomorrow will bring. So let us be all here, all focused as much as we possibly can, as we continue to sing and respond and then take communion together. Remind us of your goodness, of your holiness, of your presence amongst us. And may we be a people who don't just hear these words and shudder in fear. That could be a tendency for some of us. And may we also not hear these things and, and go, well, have I done enough? That's not the point of these stories. Jesus, you're enough. You've done enough to secure us. The point of these stories is whether or not we live like you've done enough to secure us. 
And so, Lord, help us, Holy Spirit, help us make sense of anything that's confusing in our hearts or in our minds. You're good. You're present. You're powerful. You're all wise, and we submit to you, O Lord. And may we sing now of your goodness. No matter what darkness we walk into, no matter what uncertainty we that arises, may we be people that cling to the anchor of our souls. May we be people that cling to the clarity with which you deliver your word so that we may have hope. We not walk through this life without hope, but that we would have hope not just for this life, but the life to come based on your word and no one else's. In Jesus' name, amen.